Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Greetings. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. I do not take it for granted that you have taken the time out to listen to my podcast. I know that your time is valuable, and there are countless, and I do mean countless, other podcast options out there. You have to be ruthless these days about managing your time, deciding what to listen to, choosing what to read, what not to read. It's information overload. And that's why I try here at the Right Take Podcast to bring you the most interesting guests with the most interesting ideas and takes on the culture and the culture war, and to bring you insights and maybe even guidance in this time of craziness and cultural decadence. So thank you sincerely for joining me here. And along those lines, although I've gone solo in my last couple of episodes, I have great guests coming up for the foreseeable future, beginning today. The last couple of episodes, I allowed myself to vent some of my political anger and frustration over the issue of the growing violence of the transgender movement, particularly in the case of the recent shooting by a transgender individual at a Christian grade school in Nashville, Tennessee, which left six people dead, three of them nine-year-old children. Today I'm going to shift gears, though, and move on to a completely different topic, and that is the radical left's war on a couple of ideas that are near and dear to conservatives, ideas that should be bipartisan or nonpartisan, but in our time of extreme political and cultural polarization, They are ideas that graphically illustrate the depth and breadth of the divide between today's conservatives and progressives. And I think it's an unbridgeable divide, but that's a topic for another show. Those ideas are virtue and merit. And sadly, both those words, virtue and merit, today have a hopelessly old-fashioned ring to them in our brave new world in which identity has become more important than character and in which merit is considered an oppressive concept born out of something called whiteness, white supremacy culture, both of those words and ideas, virtue and merit, seem irrelevant today, even obsolete. Virtue has to do, of course, with conforming one's words and actions to a set of ethical and moral principles. And that seems out of step with our reality TV culture, in which quietly living by a set of moral principles doesn't seem to get you very far in life, whereas being obnoxious and crude and in-your-face self-centered gets you quick success and notoriety. The Internet, unfortunately, encourages and facilitates that kind of behavior on a grand international scale. And merit these days is dismissed by the left as a myth in a country that they consider systemically racist and sexist. Merit is viewed not as earned success, but is basically white male privilege. The left instead wants you to accept their victimhood narrative, in which their ideals of equity and social justice place no demands on the various victim groups that they claim are oppressed in America, and instead require reparations and power sharing on the part of the supposed oppressor group, which of course is the white male power structure. As it happens, my guest today and my guest on the podcast next week are two fearless conservative culture warriors 
who have written brand new books about these very ideas of virtue and merit, and about the war being waged on them by progressive activists. So let's get right to that. I'm going to bring on today's guest to discuss his book about virtue and why it's critical that we reclaim it on both a personal and national level. He's actually a returning guest, my first returning guest. So please stay with us and don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of the great conversations like the one we are about to have here at the intersection of politics and culture. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. All right, coming right back, don't touch that dial. returning guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is Bill Donahue, president and CEO of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights, which is the nation's largest Catholic civil rights organization. Bill's also a former resident scholar at the Heritage Foundation and served for two decades on the board of directors of the National Association of Scholars. In addition to being the author of at least 10 books and countless articles, Bill is a frequent guest in the media, sparring with left-wing talking heads in defense of religious freedom and rights. He is a real firebrand and culture warrior, which is something I love about him. Bill Donahue, welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. Bill, the last time I had you on a few months ago, we talked about the documentary that you and the Catholic League produced called Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom about the Disney Company's descent into wokeness and gender ideology. That was a great project, and I hope the Catholic League is able to do more like that down the line sometime. Uh, but now you have a brand new book out, War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream, which I have read and I highly recommend. I've been looking forward to reading it ever since I heard the title, because God knows if there's one thing our culture could use more of, it's virtue. But what virtues are you talking about specifically, Bill? You call them the vital virtues. Right. Thank you, Mark. Yes, I studied uh, a lot of individuals as well as demographic groups. Uh, people who are successful in any walk of life, it doesn't make any difference whether it's you're an athlete, a piano player, a businessman, a dentist, it doesn't make any difference. And a couple of things come shining through. If you exercise self-control, some people call it self-discipline, impulse control, it's the same thing. If you exercise perseverance, you, if you're gritty and, and you grit it out, and if on top of that you accept personal responsibility, those three virtues are absolutely necessary for success because every individual and demographic group that I studied, they exemplify those virtues. They may also exemplify other virtues, but those are the key, self-discipline, perseverance, personal responsibility. If you possess these virtues, it doesn't guarantee success, but I can guarantee you this much, you're not going to go anywhere in life if you don't possess these virtues. Yeah, I think that used to be commonly accepted as, you know, that list of virtues as keys to success. They're tied to duties and responsibilities, but unfortunately our culture today seems to have rejected all that and instead embraced this ideal of freedom through personal expression. Uh, now, this may be a big, unwieldy question, but how did we get to this place in our culture? And do the vital virtues still matter in a culture in which identity has become more important than character? 
Well, the vital virtues still matter. I mean, if you take a look at the great athletes, to take one example, every one of them have to have these virtues. Otherwise, they don't succeed. I mentioned Tom Seaver and Michael Jordan and, uh, and, and Tom Brady and these people. Uh, they've, done, they've done magnificent work. Uh, and they had to stick it out. I mean, it didn't come natural. People seem to think that if you have, if you have natural God-given talents, that's enough. No, it's not enough. Uh, talk to Michael Jordan about that. He had to work hard every single day in order to succeed. Now, our society should be ideally nurturing them. We should be inculcating them. We should encourage these virtues to flower. Instead, we're working against it. And I say they, I'm talking about the ruling class. I'm talking about the elites, the people who make the decisions in our in, in our most fundamental institutions in society. They seem to have had the attitude that if we have inequality, it's a function of structural oppression, and it has nothing to do with the fact that some aren't doing as well as others. Indeed, I make the case in the book, I think it's probably the most controversial aspect of the book, that the ruling class, which is mostly white and well-educated, that they are the ultimate racist in our society because they don't see black people as equals. They see them as people who just can't cut it on their own. And along comes the white liberal, and he's going to rescue them with reparations and equity education and, 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 and all kinds of programs designed to push people across the finish line at the same time. That, that is racist. I've worked with blacks a good part of my life, and they can learn like everybody else. I've seen it all my life. When I worked in Spanish Harlem, uh, I, I was talking to some of the public school teachers who would come in for remedial work, and uh, they would say to me, oh, you're very, you're very demanding of the students. Uh, don't you understand that they come from a bad neighborhood? And I'd say, you know what? I treat them as equals, and you don't. Because if you went into a white suburban school, you wouldn't, you wouldn't make that comment. Of course I know the neighborhood. I'm here more than you are. I know, I know what these kids are up to, but I also know that if you keep dumbing down the bar, that's what you're going to get. So I'm going to raise the bar, and I'm going to help them clear it. And, and so I've seen that condescending, patronizing attitude uh, that they just don't have the wherewithal like us. Oh, yes, they do. The problem is with the ruling class. It's not the African-American. And as I'm sure you know, all these vital virtues and habits of hard work like uh, punctuality, delayed gratification, and, and just hard work itself are now denigrated as characteristic of what's called whiteness, this imaginary white culture that woke ideologues call oppressive and exploitative. But you write in the book about four specific groups of minorities who have earned success, who have achieved the American dream by rejecting the left's victimhood narrative and embracing these vital virtues. What are those four groups? Asians, Jews, Mormons, and Nigerians. And they all have something in common. They come from intact two-parent families where the parents have inculcated the vital virtues to them. And notice that two of the groups are people of color, Asians and Nigerians. Now, I put them there so as to get rid of the idea that if blacks are being held back, and we know that they've been held back unfairly through slavery and discrimination, nobody doubts that. But if you think that that's the answer today, the, the, the critical race theory idea of the answer to past racism is more racism, the answer to past discrimination is more discrimination, then you've missed the point altogether. So the average white guy, he doesn't know whether a Nigerian uh, is from Nigeria or is from Harlem. He's a black man. 
And yet it's not the color of skin that's holding back the West Indies, uh, the Islanders, the Nigerians, certainly not holding back the Asians and their people of color. No, if you have the vital virtues and you exercise them prudently, it will be a success. But uh, no, I, I don't want to pick up what you said very astutely, Mark, about this idea that if you if you uh, if you uh, exhibit hard work, and if you uh, if you uh, believe in self reliance, and and you believe in the nuclear family, and you think that's good, that's considered whiteness. That's considered an expression of white supremacy. This is being taught at the Smithsonian Institute of African and American History and Culture. That's what they teach in some of the schools. So what should we teach kids? That that in order not to be whitey. Then you should be not self-reliant. You should be dependent. We should bust up the nuclear family. Yeah, that, that works out real well. That we shouldn't believe in, in, in hard work. We should believe in, in sloth. Um, I mean, it's we are working against the best interest of people in our society, and nobody suffers more than those at the bottom of the socioeconomic uh, ladder. Mm-hmm. You also add patriotism to the list of vital virtues. How, do, how does the love of country fit in with those? Well, it does to this extent. If you love your country, you're going to sacrifice. You're going to volunteer. And it's very important that people in a, in a, in a free society exercise citizenship. And that is under attack as well. It typically is coming from the secular, left-wing, certainly overwhelmingly Democrat uh, segments of our society where they don't believe that America is worth fighting for. They don't believe that we're a good country. We're literally teaching kids in the schools to hate America and to hate Western civilization. We tell them to hate cops, and now we find out that nobody wants to become a cop. We tell them to hate the the, the, the army, and now we find out that the recruits are off by 25%. Uh, it's, it's a kind of uh, social suicide is what we're on here. And it's not the average American. The average American is a good person. It's the elites at the top. And they've they've adopted the woke culture and all that garbage that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And what about faith also as a factor in achieving the American dream? You know, we're in this age of declining traditional faith. Uh, Christianity and Christians are becoming, as I've mentioned in some recent podcast episodes, the most openly marginalized demographic in the country. What happens if we don't turn that trend around and reacquire the kind of faith that helped propel us as a nation to prosperity in the first place? Well, that's another example where we're going down the wrong road. We know from many studies, uh, there's no end to them, that people of faith are, on the whole, much more generous in giving up their time, volunteering. They're much more generous in terms of charitable giving. People in Mississippi give per capita more of their money to charity than the wealthy people in the state of Massachusetts, almost all of whom are secularists. There's a very big difference. It goes even into the area of giving uh, blood. Uh, people of faith are the ones who are willing to reach out to others who are in need. See, the problem with the secularist is this. He believes that helping the poor should be the job of the government. That's the, that's the socialist mentality. So their idea of helping the poor is to tax everybody else more money, take from the rich and give to the poor, kind of a Robin Hood scheme. But you see, there's no there's no skin in the game for them, is there? They don't have to do anything. They don't have to volunteer. They don't have to give up their time. Because it's just, all they want is, is, is the government to redistribute the money. That has never worked for anybody. Every single group, just take the Chinese, as some of the latest examples, the Vietnamese. They come over here, the kids don't speak the language, and within a few years, they're the valedictorian. 
They didn't become valedictorian uh, just by luck, okay? Somebody didn't push them across the finish line. They exercise self-discipline, which you need to do if you have to do homework. Exercise perseverance. So when they fell down, they got themselves up and they got back in the race, as Frank Sinatra would say. And they also exercise personal responsibility. We know that certain groups have not been handed uh, a fair share uh, of the opportunities in our society. And that's that's a reflection on, on the dominant culture. However, if you're at the bottom, Malcolm X understood this, the only way you're going to move forward is by practicing self-help. You want the, the white people to put the obstacles in there to get them out of your way. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to exercise the vital virtues if you're going to ascend the socioeconomic ladder. And that's what the ruling elites themselves did, right? I mean, they, they're hypocrites in this sense in, in that uh, they know that the vital virtues you're talking about are what help propel them to success, but they want to impose their own ideological uh, 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 standards on the, the rest of us, the 99%. That's right. They, they could not have succeeded to where they've gotten, where they didn't exercise the vital virtues. But what I'm saying in this book is that the ruling class, which is mostly white and well-educated and affluent, they have given up on black people. They will come right out and say it. But that's why I mentioned back in the 1850s, a guy who most people, most people never heard of, George Fitzhugh. He was America's first sociologist. And he was a, a man of uh, a progressive, a man of the left, like sociologists have been after his time. And he argued that slavery was good for black people. Now, how can you say, how can, how can a left-wing progressive argue that slavery is good? Because he said they were fundamentally inept people. They were too stupid. They couldn't make it. And that uh, they were the freest people because they were taken care of. If you get rid of slavery, then blacks have to compete against whites in a market economy. And they won't be able to succeed because they're too stupid. Now, people might say, well, that's just one example. No, I have lots of examples in the book. And you can go into the late 19th century, Richard Eli, who was, a, who was a, one of the progressives, he said basically the same thing as Fitzhugh. Now, let's fast forward to 1988. Charles Murray, the great social scientist, talked about the coming of the custodial democracy. He predicted that we are going to turn blacks into wards of the state, pretty much like urban, uh, like we've, uh, an urban answer to the way we take care of Indians on reservations, because the white, basically, the white liberal elites, they don't believe that blacks are equal, that they can make it on their own, and the only way they can make it is if we give them something, uh, throw bones at them, we'll, you know, we'll give them all kinds of different welfare programs and the like, which only increases dependency. So they don't come out and say it today, but that's the attitude. It smacks of racism on the part of these people who claim to be opposed to racism. No, that's the point of the book. I think it's probably the most controversial aspect of the book. Yeah, it's it's definitely racist. I mean, the, the, the ruling elites and their promotion of this notion that America is a white supremacist society, that it's systemically racist, this whole victimhood narrative uh, is a way for them to keep minorities on the plantation, as they put it. And so they consider Asians who, as you've noted, uh, have achieved their own success to be only marginally people of color. And they, in fact, they call Asians white adjacent. And they consider black Africans or, or black conservatives, any blacks that reject the whole leftist uh, victimhood narrative as not really black. Uh, so that's, that's a definite 
uh, racism on their part. Uh, just to get back for a moment to talking about faith, I just wanted to mention this point. I don't recall that you specifically discussed humility in the book, but I feel like one of the things that faith sows in us is the humility to recognize that we are fallen beings and that we have to be careful to balance a kind of a cultural confidence with humility in order to avoid uh, the kind of arrogance that leads us to believe we can socially engineer a perfect society, because that always leads down a bad road. Uh, would, would you agree with that about the importance of humility? Oh, I would. In fact, I'll take it a step further. In the Catholic tradition, it's called the belief in original sin, that we're all a fallen people. That means that the only heaven that exists is in the next world. It's not here in this world. Now, the secularists have long believed in creating utopia here at home. Every major effort by a government toward a utopia has ended in genocide. Hitler thought he had, he was standing for Volk, the people. Uh, then you had Stalin, Mao Zedong. You, 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 you've, you, you've had all of this throughout history. Uh, Pol Pot, uh, they all believe, it goes back to Marx, that you can create basically a secular heaven on earth because they don't believe that man has fallen. They do believe that we are perfectible. This idea came out of the Enlightenment. And if you put that together with today, the idea of postmodernism, which basically means that truth is a fiction, that there's no such thing as truth. Now you have a recipe for the left-wing disaster. And that's what's happened, not just in this country. It's happening in Canada, New, uh, New Zealand, to Australia, and throughout Europe. Uh, the only people who are so crazed with this idea that there's no such thing as truth tend to be the well-educated white people. The idea that men can get pregnant is not accepted in Latin America. It's certainly not accepted in Africa. They drive you right out of the Middle East if you, if you walk in there and try to tell them about that. They don't believe a word of it in China. Russia has nothing to do with it. No, you have to go to places like the London School of Economics and Harvard before you believe such nonsense. It's all madness. It's madness. That's right. And speaking of madness, uh, you know, I think uh, the, the kind of utopianism that you and I are talking about is definitely uh, one of the impulses behind wokeness and also this growing fascination with transhumanism, this supposed next level of human evolution that its proponents say will op they openly claim it will make us gods. Uh, and I think that's kind of the ultimate uh, aim of this utopianism is to replace God. You think that's leading us in a good direction? That's that. You, 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 you hit it right out of the park on that. They don't believe in human nature. They don't believe in God, but they do believe in perfectibility. And of course, they are the perfect ones because if they will be the ones at the control center uh, doing the social engineering. And if you just leave the driving to them, everything's going to be just fine. But you know what? It's interesting. At the same time that that's going on, there's other segments of the left who don't believe that utopia can be realized. They are even worse because they are the nihilist. They understand that socialism has failed every place it's ever been tried. So instead of trying to make the world better, I mean, Marx was absolutely wrong in understanding human nature. And that's why his idea of the communist society, the, the utopian society, could never work. But at least he thought he had the blueprint to make society better. There are a number of people on the left today who say, no, that's not possible. So let's just tear everything down. 
We're not going to make anything better, but we don't like what we have today. That would be Antifa. Antifa are a group of urban anarchists who want to destroy everything in their sights. Let's get back for a moment about something you mentioned a moment ago, the importance of the family, because that's a topic that I feel very passionate about. Uh, You write that when it comes to the well-being of the individual and of society as a whole, there's no substitute for the nuclear family. But as you know, today, the nuclear family has been deconstructed almost out of existence intentionally. And now the family is just whatever voluntary arrangement uh, any number of individuals has, has agreed to enter into. You call this the ultimate triumph of moral relativism, that if every social arrangement is a family, then none is. Now, why is that a problem for achieving the American dream? Yes, uh, we know from all the great work done by uh, the the prominent sociologists uh, that there's no substitute for the nuclear family. It's the blue chip. It's the model for all others. Now, there are other ways to live. Yeah, you can live in uh, blended families, one-parent families. You can live in communes uh, and the like. But the fact of the matter is that idea that all family structures and arrangements and expressions are equal is simply contradicted by the social science evidence. There's no substitute for it. And what is Black Lives Matter doing? What is Antifa doing? What are they teaching in the schools? The Smithsonian, which I mentioned before, they're saying that the nuclear family should be destroyed. That's what they're teaching. And so, it, it, this, as, as I say, this is a form of suicide. If you wanted to destroy America, and particularly the least among us, uh, the minorities, that's exactly what you would recommend. This is where the plan comes together with the white, well-educated, affluent uh, elites. And it goes all the way back to Marx calling explicitly for the abolition of the family in order to achieve his uh, collectivist utopia. Why is the role of the father such a critical component of the nuclear family? Well, every society in history, as Stephen Goldberg, the sociologist, once pointed out in his book, The Inevitability of Patriarchy, every society in history has been patriarchal, not one without it. Margaret Mead is often held up as the one anthropologist who found societies which were matriarchal. She said, no, every society in history has been run by men. The only ones you wouldn't find that way is if a few primitive societies where all the men are practically killed through warfare. No. And and so they look at the father as the authority figure. Look, if your goal is to consolidate power within the state, then you have to attack the two institutions in society where people give their natural allegiance to. One is the family, and the other is the church. So you target the family for destruction. You target religion for destruction. Because if, you, if you're if you left with no clergy and no father and no mother, for that matter, then you're going to give your, your sense of communion uh, to the state. They know exactly what they're doing. And I'm not reading into this. I mean, I'm quoting in the book from the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1940s and 50s, as well as Marx and others in the 19th century, and, and, and others going back, Robert Owen, Charles Fourier in England and France, they're very, very open about it. It's, it's not a matter of conjecture or superstition. The left has always wanted to destroy family and religion. 
And what about the sexual revolution of the 1960s and beyond? Well, I mean, actually, it's still with us, not just from the 1960s. If anything, the sexual revolution, I guess, has gone to a whole new level with this trans movement. But how did the sexual revolution contribute to the war on virtue? Well, it did because it wanted to undermine the family. When you have people like Shulamith Firestone back in the 1960s saying pregnancy is barbaric, when you have Linda Gordon and you have uh, 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 Kate Millett and others saying that we have to destroy the family, Gloria Steinem, I quote them in the book, uh, they're in favor of libertinism. Libertinism is sexual license. The Judeo-Christian understanding of sexual expression is that it should be confined to the institution of marriage for the procreation of children. And then if you live in a society of promiscuity, then you're going to wind, with, wind up with out-of-wedlock births. You're going to wind up with sexually transmitted diseases. It's a recipe for disaster. It's precisely why people like uh, Alfred Kinsey and John Money and others at Johns Hopkins and Indiana University, that's where they pioneered this idea, they wanted to create libertinism so that they could destroy the family. The more promiscuity, the better. Uh, again, when people hear this, they say, well, I know things are a little out of control, but are you telling us that this was planned? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's not a matter of happenstance. And what about Hollywood's role in uh, in all this, in imposing this ruling class's vision on society? And by Hollywood, of course, I mean just the entertainment industry, generally speaking. What, what's their part in this? Well, they have made the decision a long time ago, let's push the envelope. Again, those are, that, those are their words. Let's just keep pushing the envelope. When I was a kid growing up in New York uh, back in the 1950s, if they had a woman on a, on a game show and she was showing too much cleavage, the next day, Jack O'Brien and the Journal American and others would criticize her that this is not right. You had, he had the honeymooners of Jackie uh, Gleason, and uh, they never once saw the inside of the, of the bedroom. You saw them going in and out, but you never saw it. Now we have we've we've long time from the you know now they go bed hopping now you've got gay now you've got transgender now you have obscene lyrics uh, being sung on MTV and BTV uh, our society has become so morally debased as a result of the entertainment industry it's astounding. You also have a chapter on education, which as a homeschooler is another topic that I'm passionate about. Uh, your chapter is called sabotaging. Education. How are the the ruling elites sabotaging uh, the education that's necessary for achieving the American dream? Well, they don't believe in standards. They don't believe in merit. They want to punish the Asians because they're too successful. Uh, their idea of equity education is that we do away with most entrance exams. Uh, we push everybody across the finish line at the same time. Uh, they've basically given up on blacks in particular. I take great offense at this because I work with black and Puerto Rican kids in Spanish Harlem in a dangerous neighborhood in the 70s in a Catholic school, and I saw what can be done. But you had to demand of the kids. The more, de- the more you demand, the, less, the more you're going to get. And the less you demand, the less you're going to get. Now we're at the idea where they're saying that if you teach correct spelling, that's an example of logocentrism, of, of, of make, make, making a worship of the, of the word. Uh, mathematics is not should be the idea of two plus two equals four. That's a white man's idea. 
can you imagine if you you, you want to you want to build a house and you don't know anything about engineering and that's a white man's idea? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 amazing to me that it's gotten as far as it has. But if you wanted to subvert education, that's what you would push for. I, I I've never seen such a, a deliberate intent uh, to to destroy. Uh, academic excellence in my whole life. It's amazing anybody can read or write anymore. Yeah, and it's really kind of an attack on Western civilization in the larger sense, isn't it? I mean, this notion that uh, uh, that, and I'm quoting someone directly here. They they say that there are other ways of knowing besides just Western reason and rationalism, uh, and that they're just as valid as Western um, ways of thinking. Isn't that really just a, an assault on our entire civilization? Well, it's also a, a, an assault on our intelligence. So what are we supposed to be guided by? Feelings? That, that's real good. That, that, that would be good, okay? Yeah. You just have your feelings out there. Yeah, that, that'll work real well. You can build a lot of bridges when you have like, a lot of feelings on that, something like that. No, we, we've, done, we've done everything we can to assault these, these, these virtues, and that's why, like you said before, they resent blacks who are successful and who become conservative. That's also part of the game here. They want to demonize people. Uh, it's, it, they're engaged in thought control at every level, telling you what pronouns that you have to use. Uh, and, and unless we stand up to this and say, time out, uh, this is madness. We should get back to basics, back to common sense. We should... We, we should demand homework. I mean, there's a direct correlation, as I point out in more than one case in the book, uh, between the more homework you give and the academic achievement level of the students. They have found out, for example, that nobody demands more in terms of homework than Asian parents. Guess who does the best on all of the, the tests? Now they want to kill the test, kill the messenger, because too many Asians succeed. It, you know, uh, listen... I don't care if, if, if there are more Jews and Asians and Mormons and Nigerians uh, making life better for us and easier with technology than there are Irish and Italian and Germans and Ukrainians. So be it. Uh, maybe the others ought to work harder to catch up. But why are we punishing people who, who are showing us the way? It's, it's, it's astounding to me. Bill, do you think that our uh, competitors, to put it politely, on the world stage, the Chinese, uh, do you think that they're waging a war on merit and on virtue? I don't see it in China. I do see it here. They would, they would, they would uh, certainly cheer it on here because that, that's exactly what they want. Uh, no, other countries have not gone the, down this road. It's there's something really corrupt about the powers of higher education. And don't misunderstand me. I have a PhD. I'm very happy. I've gotten a good education from NYU, left wing though it was. Uh, but what I'm saying is this. Education is an inverse relationship. We touched on it before between religion and education. Uh, should be education and religion. The more education you have, the more years in school you spend, the less likely you are to be religious. And that does feed this idea that maybe there isn't a God and maybe we can create a kind of a God-like situation here, a utopia in our society. It has never worked. It's always dangerous. And, it, and unless we get back to the fundamentals and trust our gut, you know, I, I get asked this a lot lately, particularly with the new book, uh, War on Virtue. Uh, what do you recommend people to, to Americans? 
Number one, you should trust your gut. I don't want people to be cynical of our elites, but they should be skeptical. So we know, for example, what happened during COVID. We're all told that we had to wear the mask and everything. And then we saw the elites, Nancy uh, Pelosi and Gretchen Whitmer and Bill de Blasio and all these people. They went to the parties and had a good time. None of them wore the mask. They knew it was a scam. Okay? So it's a form of control is what it is. That's what that whole thing was about. I'm not saying that everybody was recommended. Some people were just, uh, they, they had the best interests of the public in, in mind, and maybe they, they got too carried away with uh, with the utility of the mask. But there are a lot of people in our society whose judgment at the top, I don't trust. So when Bud Weiser comes out and says, well, you know, there was just a kind of a small mistake that we made there in pushing the transgender person for Bud Light. That wasn't a mistake. And it wasn't small. It was designed to create a different cultural milieu or an environment where we come to appreciate people who are obviously struggling with some mental issues. Uh, a boy can't become a girl and vice versa. If this needs to be explained, it needs to be explained to the people with the graduate school degrees, by the way. That's what all the surveys show. The people with the least amount of education are the least likely to be fooled about the idea of, of, of flipping from one sex to the other. The longer you stay in school, the more likely you are to, uh, to believe in the moonshine. That's just how dangerous uh, this road we've gone down. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's one of the reasons I'm such a big proponent of homeschooling. Um, and I'm not alone these days because homeschooling is really is really booming. As a former, this is a little bit off topic, I suppose, but as a former uh, educator yourself, what, what are your feelings about homeschooling? I would encourage, if I had it my way, I would close down every public school in the United States tomorrow, and they would reopen as public charter schools. I'm not against public schools, but they would only be charter schools. Instead, we're trying to kill the charter schools. Charter schools are public schools, paid for by the public, but they're run by private sector people. And you don't have the teachers unions, you don't have the administrators and uh, top heavy like you have now. I would also be in favor of homeschooling. I would encourage school choice. I would encourage all of these alternatives. What's hurting, again, African-Americans the most is the monopoly that the teachers unions have on public education. They just elected a radical uh, mayor in Chicago uh, who is supported almost totally by the teachers unions and who, and when hundreds of young black kids rioted on Saturday night and destroyed uh, a lot of the Tony neighborhoods, it's broke glass and cars and jumped on top of buses and, and street lamps. The, 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 the best the mayor could do was say, well, we don't condone it, but we have to be careful not to demonize. Be careful not to demonize the, 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 young, the, the young radicals. You know, guess what's going to happen next weekend and the weekend after and the weekend after? And the teachers' unions are the ones who have put the money up and allowed him to win. So... I'm not against teachers. I, I taught uh, every grade from the second to uh, newly mid PhDs from around the world. But uh, be careful of the teachers' unions. They, they should not. Re- they shouldn't even be legal. You'd think that the people of Chicago would have learned their lesson with the previous mayor, Lori Lightfoot, but it looks like they went off and uh, elected someone who was even more radical than her. Well, again, uh, I don't be to be repetitious, but I looked at the data on this. He only won by a few percentage points. If you took away the money that came from the teachers' union and let him have all the money from everybody else, he would have gotten creamed. 
But the teachers' unions, uh, they actually put him over the top. He got hundreds of millions for them. I think everybody could agree that we're witnessing in America and maybe even in the Western world, generally speaking, this alarming decline in law and order uh, and this rise of social chaos and just incivility in general. How are the ruling elites rewarding that, rewarding uh, incivility? Well, they allowed the riots to take place uh, by Black Lives Matter with hundreds of people, uh, at least 24 dead as a result of Black Lives Matter. God knows how much money was lost in terms of property damage and policemen injured and the like back in 2020. And I, I, I go through all those cases where the, there was a, uh, some ugly interactions between the police and, 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 uh, and some black men. And I'm very careful about that. And it, I, I really try to explode a lot of the myths that are out there about that. But the ruling class, let's keep in mind, they always have private security. They always live in gated communities. They always are, have uh, their, their, their own protective class. And yet they are the ones who want to defund the police. They are the ones who want to abolish the prisons. If you ask blacks in the surveys, they don't want to defund the police. They don't want to abolish the prisons. It's always those people who believe that if the if just like the, the mayor of Chicago said now uh, about the thugs who took over Chicago on Saturday night, uh, they believe that these that to every crime there are two victims. There's the guy who's been victimized, but then the victimizer is also a victim of society. So if you if unless we come down and say, wait a minute, there's only if there's a victim, there can't be two victim victims here. One is a victimizer, and one is the victim. And this idea, you you tell that to a, I worked in Harlem. You tell that to a, a 73 year old black woman who's been knocked down on the street and her teeth have been knocked out. That we have to be understanding, empathic about the person who did it to there because that's a young black boy who lives in a bad neighborhood. Well, she's an old black lady and she lives in the same neighborhood. Why should she be empathic about somebody who shares the same color of skin? I mean, this is this is again a form of racism because we don't expect that black people can act in a civil manner. Blacks are, most blacks are civil-minded people like everybody else. And if you do have a, a disproportionate number of black men involved in crime, it's because the 70% of the of, of black kids are born out of wedlock. It all comes down to the family. Take a look at the black kids born into families where there's a father and a mother. They're not the ones running into the street at night at, at, at two o'clock in the morning breaking windows. They're, they're, they're at home. They're asleep. They're getting ready for school the next day. It all comes down to the family. It has nothing to do with race. It's always the family. Yeah, totally agree. What are, what are the ways that we can push back against these false narratives of the ruling elites? You mentioned education as one uh, crucial tool or weapon. What, what other ways, what can we do to reverse this? We have to be more willing to exercise courage. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go in and fight with your boss. I am saying that even within your own family, friends, neighbors, when you hear something that strikes you as just being wrongheaded, all right, bizarre, you have to gently say, well, that's not my understanding. I don't know what how you came to that conclusion. We have to be a bit more vocal. Now, in some cases, it might mean you may lose a friend. I would say, I didn't think you lost a friend because a friend is not going to walk away from you because they disagree with you. That person wasn't your friend in the first place. But the, the idea of complaining to ourselves or to just people like-minded 
that's got to end. I like the idea that mothers in particular saw what was going on during COVID and became more active and, and, and they, they learned what was going on with the poisonous ideas in the classroom and they joined the school board and they got elected. That's what I'm talking about. You have to make your voice heard. And, and that may be even with your own clergy. Um, yeah, it's uh, again, I'm not asking people. I know they have mortgages and a lot of bills to pay. I'm not asking everybody to be a martyr. After all, I'm, I'm paid to be a culture warrior, so it's a little easier for me. But I am saying people do need to buck up a little bit and speak up. Uh, other, otherwise, we're going to be treated like a pinata, like a doormat. Yeah, I agree. I think we've got to each of us speak the truth. And uh, courage is contagious. So when we speak the truth, others will stand up as well. Bill, thank you for writing this book, The War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. Listeners, it is out now. It's a must read for Americans to get this country back on track. Bill, what is the best way that people can keep up with all that you are doing? Well, we have a Catholic League website, catholicleague.org. The book is available through Amazon and through Sophia Institute Press, as well as Barnes & Noble. And uh, I hope people buy it. I think I think people will be moved by this book. The reaction I'm getting already in the first week is, 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 is really uh, uh, very pleasing to me because I think I've hit a chord. People are fed up, and this book will open your eyes. Yes, it totally will. Bill Donahue, thanks for coming back to The Right Take, and keep fighting the good fight, sir. Thank you, Mark. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.